Welcome back, friends. This is Carrie Morrison, and this week you will hear the second part of my conversation with Dr. Roberto Mezzina in Trieste, Italy, and Dr. Sashi Sashidaran joining from Glasgow, Scotland. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode nine, the first part of this interview, I would encourage you to do so just to place this conversation in context. As we learned last time, Roberto and Sashi were part of a five-person delegation that came to Los Angeles in September 2018 to view our mental health system. In last week's interview, we hear their impressions of their visit to Skid Row, to a hospital with locked doors, which is something you don't see in Trieste, and most shocking was their visit to L.A. County Twin Towers, suggested by some to be the largest mental institution in the country, where on some floors, inmates with mental health problems are chained to furniture. In this week's interview, they recount their visit to a home where they met with families of loved ones with mental illness and heard firsthand the pain of the parents who feel marginalized by our system because it is nearly impossible to have a role in the care of their adult sons and daughters. You will also hear about their interactions with members of our team representing the mental evaluation units and crisis response for the L.A. Sheriff's Department and the LAPD. We will also touch upon the importance of human rights as a lens through which we might view a more humane and dignified treatment of people with mental health conditions in our society. It's a lot to cover. Here we go. Uh, welcome back to uh, the 10th and final episode of Heart Forward Conversations from the Heart for this first season. And I'm delighted to introduce back our friends, uh, Dr. Roberto Mezzina. It's evening in Trieste, Italy right now, and we're also joined by Dr. Sashi Sashidaran in Glasgow. It's also evening, and I have sunlight coming in on my face on this December morning. So welcome back, gentlemen. And we want to pick up on a few of the themes that we could not get to in, in our last conversation, which was quite robust. So I want to pick up on, we talked a little bit about the role of the family in the life of a person with mental illness and how families are treated differently in an American context, maybe even in the UK and certainly in Trieste. When you came to the United States, you know, in September 2018, you came to Los Angeles You spend a couple hours one morning with a group of families at the home of one of our delegation members, Sarah Dussault, and I think you heard that families feel like they're very much marginalized in our system. They're left out. They often don't know where their loved ones are. We have very interesting laws around privacy that are sometimes interpreted differently depending on what county or city you're in. So... Let me just open it up to what you remember about what you learned here in Los Angeles and how that differs from the context that you operate in, both in Italy and in the UK. Yeah. Hello, Carrie. Thank you very much for inviting us again. Well, I think it was a very significant meeting, uh, probably the, for me, one of the most important uh, we had in Los Angeles in our visit, because that group of families, I think seven or eight families were there, and also they were all interested in what could happen with their sons, with their kids. And uh, they were, you know, 
like in Italy, was the same attitude they had toward uh, something that was uh, going wrong because their sons were completely disconnected from the system. They were sometimes they didn't know where they were. In fact, so I remember a father was saying that for two years he had no news about his son. But this was terrible, I think, and so maybe very significant about the problems of navigating into the system. So families are lost and the clients are lost. They lose the connection between them and the family and the services. So, and uh, of course, we have privacy rules also here in Italy uh, and particularly when you have problems with drug addiction because this can be to some problems with justice, etc. But on the other hand, it's vital to involve families because they are so important to provide significant, meaningful uh, networks and relationships to the people that have mental health problems. So I think the questions were about the same when we can meet, have an encounter with some families in Italy which live in, in an area without services, without good community services. And so it was very important to try to find a way to amend this terrible problem. So I think it's very important that the family is supported from the beginning. And I have to say that in Trieste, after the break done by the first acts closing the mental hospital about maybe 10 years later, we started to work intensively with the families because we recognized that, you know, supporting the clients in their pathways toward recovery and social inclusion was not disconnected with supporting their families and try to keep them linked, even sometimes in conflictual situation, in problems, trying to find a, a solution to some family dynamics or sometimes to support people to have an emancipation from, from their families, try to avoid dependence, etc. So I think problems are very similar. Yeah, Sashi, how was that handled in the United Kingdom? I just kept remembering that meeting in Pasadena with the families. Um, it did come as a, a shock to us listening to those stories, uh, not because we are not unfamiliar with the experience of families being excluded from mental health system, but the fact that we were actually meeting people who were fairly affluent, articulate, and who had a very good understanding of the local mental health system and how it worked. And what surprised me was the their inability to penetrate the system to advocate for, care for their loved ones. That came as a bit of a surprise because one tends to see people, in particular strata of society, who are easily excluded from mental health system, but not the people that we saw in uh, Pasadena. That, that was a bit of a surprise, that in such a system as in LA, that they were being excluded. The exclusion of families from mental health care is unfortunately far too common, and uh, it occurs in, I would say, most Western countries. But what, one of the things that we do know about families and mental health on the basis of research and on the basis of the clinical experience of people around the world is that obviously with the consent of the individual concerned and also making sure that the families are not bringing in toxic dynamics into the interaction, the families are an absolutely vital asset that we, mental health workers, mental health services, we have to acknowledge and uh, work with. And wherever people have tried to do that, working with families, it has produced wonderful results. 
And also when we talk about community mental health, and generally people like me, when we talk about community mental health, the assumption is that community is always better. And I think there is a lot of evidence to support that. Certainly clinical experience is that the, the social fabric of the community, the social capital available to individuals, all those are critical to the recovery of people with mental health problems. But within the community, the most important part of any community is the family. And it's the families that constitute that community. And um, in my experience, usually families know the individuals who come to me with their mental health problems more than anybody else. And most individuals rely on their families for growth, for development, as well as to survive crisis and to make the best of the resources available to them to recover from their mental health problems that families continue to be excluded quite actively in the management of people with mental health problems. Roberto, we'll just pick up. I know you wanted to jump in and say something. I don't want to, you know, to underline too much that the situation in Pasadena was too different from Italy because uh, always you find the same dynamics. So it's uh, it's part of our work to involve families, as Sashi said. Also, uh, we have to recognize that family is not just an asset for care, but they suffer themselves. They are consumers of services. They are users of services because they have their uh, burden. They have their worries. They have their guilty sometimes. They have their culture to be, in a way, taken into consideration. So one of the ways to approach this was to, you know, in the, in the English-speaking countries to provide so-called psychoeducation that means sometimes teaching what happens to a person with mental illness and sometimes is a plain explanation of the medical model. But this is not enough because what is needed is to create a network of support and support their capability of being with the clients. So everywhere. So Italy maybe some, can have some advantage from this point, but sometimes this is a disadvantage because families are very much damaging the mental health of their sons. So it's a, it's a balance uh, from this point of view. So it's very important to consider family as such. They are users of the services and you cannot deny that. You cannot forget. Yeah, what, what I was always struck by as I learned about your system was the importance of a person's life story. You can't understand their life story unless you know where they came from, who their family was. And in America, we view this as more of a clinical diagnosis diagnosis and it's not your life story doesn't matter. When I was there in March of 2019, I went to Udine with Renzo and he took me to the community mental health center and I observed something quite amazing. A couple came in, a man and a wife, very distraught. They were at wit's end. They didn't know how to deal with their daughter and they came in without an appointment and I was allowed to sit in the room. They granted permission. It was all in Italian, so I didn't know everything that happened. But they were struggling to figure out how do we deal with this situation. And it was very compassionate. It was very helpful. And afterwards, I asked the psychiatrist, wow, that would never happen in the United States. Two parents could not walk in and ask for advice. How are you going to handle that with the user? And they said, we will let him know that they were here. But it's, you know, unless there's a major issue, they're pretty 
upfront about it. I thought that was beautiful, actually. Life stories are so important from the point of view of the person, of the individual that has to develop his narrative, has to tell his story. But uh, also on the part of, of those we live with this person, because they have a point of view. And, and this is a, sometimes it's a very, very important to have this, what we call the participatory decodification of a crisis. So understanding the different points of view and uh, put them in a comparison of uh, you know the diversity of the interests, of the affections, uh, etc., which are there. And so it's important. These, these things are the most important part of the work we do. So allowing people to tell their stories, having becoming sort of protagonist of their care and, and starting to have an interaction and a dialogue with the service. Now, there is a lot of talking about open dialogues and other approaches which are based on narratives. And in, in our, how to say, artisan-like apprenticeship, we did in Trieste when we closed the asylum. This was the very first thing we learned, uh, not by books, but by practice. So you have to listen to people, have people involved in their care. Oh, listening is so critical. That's so well said. I want to move on to another topic, Sashi, unless there's anything else you want to add to this. Just very quickly, Kerry, I tend to prolong these <laughs> conversations by adding in little bits here and there. One of the critical things that I've learned from Trieste, and I wouldn't have learned it anywhere else, is the, the art of negotiation, what some people describe as the relentless negotiation and the time and investment that you put into it with the services and with people who actually come to you for help. There is always a tractured negotiation. And in fact, when you look at Western psychotherapy, it's around negotiation, understanding, and then coming to a uniform, agreed way forward. The relentless negotiation, especially in situations, crisis situations, where things are conflict-laden, where the negotiation can always be enhanced. Again, I have learned from Trieste is, by bringing in other people who know that individual much better than I would do as a stranger, relative stranger, however well-meaning I am as a psychiatrist, bringing in the mother or the family or a family member into that, uh, not only will equalize the dynamics a bit more, but also will bring in information that both parties can use in taking the negotiation forward. And that is you know, when I, for example, wonder why is it in Trieste, they very, very rarely, if ever, actually coerce people into treatment, which is a very common feature of mental health system, both in the United States and here in the United Kingdom, forcibly in introducing treatment, um, admission to hospital. How does that work in Trieste? And, and the kernel of the idea there is negotiations and if it fails negotiate again and in that process the more people you can bring in not only to help take the the negotiation forward but also to enhance my understanding as a psychiatrist who ultimately has the power to impose those restrictions or that coercion so families you know when we talk about them they're an important asset in this in actually bringing uh, to the table um, what they know about the individual and what their views are, and also for that individual to actually reflect on that in the process of negotiation. I think, Kerry, that Sashi is uh, just staying back a little bit because his practice was that way. <laughs> we, I, I observed the practice of the crisis team that Sashi led in Birmingham, and it was precisely 
the same that we were doing in Trieste. So talking about people, life stories, talking about the negotiation, creative ways to involve other people in this negotiation, like, you know, the religious, the priest, or not just the family, but the friends, or, you know, some strange people sometimes can enter into play. The peers can be very important. Right. So you bring up the word crisis, and we do have to kind of wander into how different the role of law enforcement is in the United States and how different it is in Trieste. And, you know, when I tell stories about what I observe in Italy, I'll say the police are the last people you would call for a mental health crisis in Trieste. But unfortunately, the police are the first people you call here in the U.S. And I think you had the opportunity to observe, I think, some of the most caring, compassionate, well-trained Members of law enforcement, we had, you know, people you met with from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and Los Angeles Police Department Mental Evaluation Unit. You spent a lot of time with them and observed what they do. Tell us a little bit about your observations about being here. And now it's interesting because there's a movement in America to shift away from law enforcement, but there's no viable option that's been created to do that. Do you know what is ROAR? <laughs> ROAR is the acronym of the <laughs> Los Angeles police invented by right. tell, Fantastic Psych. Tell us about ROAR by P Dr. D'Angelo. Yes. Tell us about ROAR. <laughs> D'Angelo said, taught us that, you know, what they do as police, they have to respond. So they respond are to any, any call because they have to go there, be on the spot, observe or <laughs> observe. So don't immediately come into action, but observe, then assess. So evaluate what is happening, see which is the person with the most uh, important suffering and then react, but not reacting by using force not reacting by using guns, but reacting by thinking what to do. And he said, slow down if possible, slow down whenever it's possible, and then react just in case of need. So you have, this is very, very important uh, lessons that we learned. I think this is basically something that we have seen in action. Sashi, what do you think? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. I mean, I can talk about my experience of uh, going out with the people from the mental evaluation team, uh, which was um, very positive. They were very caring people. They dealt with crisis situations appropriately speedily and it was very clear if they were not around these people would not have received any help and the individual interactions that we saw very high quality very respectful very empathic and they were able to make quick decisions to protect that individual as best as they could but we must bear in mind that this is a default option the police in Los Angeles became involved in managing mental health crisis because of the failure of the system, the mental health system to deal with that. Yes, because that repair job has proved to be effective. It doesn't mean that we should lose sight of the primary responsibility of mental health agencies to look after mental health crisis. And also we must bear in mind, police, especially in the United States and to some extent in this country, are not trusted by many people. The police are a threat to some people's health in the United States, as we have seen recently. People end up being dead through their interaction with the police. So to actually expect the police to carry the responsibility for dealing with any kind of health crisis, including mental health crisis, for me, is the wrong way down the road. We should enable 
and make sure that the local mental health system have the capacity to deal with that. What we saw in Los Angeles was wonderful, what the police were doing and what they were dealing with. We saw a a small selection of cases. And we also saw the statistics in relation to the number of cases they were dealing with every year, which is very highly impressive. And I understand that service is now expanding, which I am disappointed with because mental health crisis should ideally be dealt with through mental health services. I think I agree. I think that another important point, police were intervening alone. So they go, just one policeman, deputy sheriff, so-called, when going to a place and assessing the situation, understanding everything, working basically alone, even with, you know, radio and everything, computer, even guns, a big car, etc. But it was alone and he was facing a situation without having the also the technical instruments to really decodify and intervene in the situation. So it was based on common sense, the, you know, human attitudes, etc. and some training. But uh, it, this was, I agree, with Sashi. Basically, it's an issue of mental health, or at least working together with mental health services. So sometimes, on the other hand, mental health services can, can suffer because they are put on the first line in, in a case of so-called social control. So they cannot do it properly also. So we can have problems in dealing with criminal uh, acts, etc. But on the other hand, there are many, many situations where you have to work with the police. Police representing their point of view, they represent law, they represent the order, they represent you know, the limit to the person's behavior because of the law. And the mental health is supporting the mental health issues, trying to you know, provide psychological help, etc. So this combination is important, working in team and not denying the importance of being on the spot. So I told you, well, we don't have a different police in Italy. Police is police. They have different aims in their job. Their tasks are different. Their culture is different. But they intervene sometimes in the same place and in the same situations where mental health has to do it. So I think the importance is to find a convergent view, to find a sort of, again, negotiation also between mental health and police teams to do something together. So it's important to be, for mental health, to be on the spot. This is what we learned in Trieste. So I learned that we have to go, and I also seen Sashi going, immediately there when there is a call, when there is a, a referral, going on the, being on the spot and starting to work. If possible, you have to call the police, but sometimes afterwards, after you have seen that the person is uh, behind the door and they are very much in a state of suffering and they are, there can be also some risk for the health of this person or for the family, etc. So then you have to be very uh, delicate, very you know soft in a way, but also firmly intervene and support in this person while sometimes you have to ask the help of the police. But being there, you can do it together and you can create a different way of approaching it. So that's very important. Would it be fair to say that the mental health service, whether it's a psychiatrist or a nurse, whatever, is the first one to respond to a crisis in your city? You would be 24-7, 24 hours a day available to respond to a crisis. <laughs> can be a myth. So I think it's not important for me. Okay. The importance is to having the availability to do it, not going in a blind way, <laughs> but understanding what you are facing, where you are, are you going, taking a lot of information, involving the, the right people, involving the family, trying to create the context of an intervention that can't be violent to the person, this can be respectful to the person. And sometimes 
even the police can be respectful if we work together from a different, again, point of view. But uh, the importance is to be available, to be flexible, not to be activist in any case, but to have uh, something to uh, in your mind to take into very clearly that this is your job. You can do it with others, but this is your job. Sashi, I know you want to say something. Yes, Gary, I just, I just want to say one more thing about the involvement of the police and uh, criminal justice system in relation to mental health. Because this is no longer an underlying theme. This theme is becoming increasingly explicit, especially in rich countries like the United States and to some extent here in the United Kingdom, which is the criminalization of people with mental health problems, mental illness. In the United States, as we know, most of the people with long-term severe mental illness are in prison setting or what you call jails. They are incarcerated. Either they are convicted of crimes and then left to receive a custodial sentence, or they are removed into prisons because of the behavior consequent upon their mental health problems. Increasing numbers in your prisons, people with severe mental health problems, that is one aspect of it. Now, if we invite the police to police the mentally ill, as it were, through crisis interventions, that is yet another aspect of mental health care that will become increasingly criminalized. And the emphasis there and this goes against the fundamental principles of places like Greece, which is the balance between control and care, coercion and care, custody and care. And that balance inexorably shifts towards custodial coercive interventions if the police takes over managing most aspects or many aspects of mental health care. In terms of crisis services, yes, by default, police gets involved. But in an ideal scenario, certainly it is a common theme in this country that most mental health services have got a 24-7 crisis team attached to it. So in when we were running our services in Birmingham, a big urban setting, we had 24-7 mental health crisis teams available, which would be the first responders from Referrals that we receive from local agencies, such as family physicians, general practitioners, including the police, they would contact us and we would be there to deal with the mental health crisis as and when required with the assistance of other agencies. But the default position was it will be mental health workers who will be responding to that crisis in the community. Excellent. Go ahead, Roberto. No, just a reflection, because I think that what is, uh, I'm just wondering what, what can be, how can be expressed the real motivation, the basic motivation for acting in this way. In my opinion, it's linked to the sense of responsibility. So feeling to be responsible toward this person. Because if you work in a community service where you are going to follow this person, probably for a long time, at least in the crisis, but you're maybe following this person for one year, two years, or sometimes for the life, you need to be careful with what you do. You need to be respectful, but also you have to take into consideration that what you are doing with this person can have impact on the future. So if you involve this person in a relationship, if you, if you gain a condition of trusty relationship, this is a good investment for the future. So you must be responsible, you must be there, 
but not in the sense of just using or imposing power, but being accountable to the community that is represented by this person, the family members, and the, the neighbors. Sometimes everyone can be into the play. So this sense of responsibility, I think, is one of the key. Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you brought that up. There is a sense of accountability to people's lives in your system. So let's continue on this path on the criminal justice system and some of the changes that you've been able to make in Italy, which are pretty profound with respect to the elimination of so-called forensic hospital or forensic incarceration uh, for people who, who did get involved with the criminal justice system. A significant law was passed in 2014 in Italy. Can you describe the significance of that law, Roberto, and a little bit about the results. I know they may be mixed in Italy. Some places are doing better than others, but the aspiration of what you are trying to do to help rehabilitate people and to, as Sashi says, decriminalize mental illness is astounding. Yeah, uh, I think it's a very complex matter anyway. <laughs> I don't want to be so straight and simplify too much because I think it's important to understand the difference in the systems, of course, because in Italy, okay, we still have this, which is called the double track system, the dual track system. That means that a person that considered to be not responsible for their acts, criminal acts or even small ones, this person doesn't go to a trial, but is in a way put in a different pathway that is protecting the society from this person because it's based on capability and dangerousness. So if the person can be declared to be incapable to understand and to will about his acts and, and also at the same time can be considered to be a danger for the community. In this case, is submitted to what is called a, a security measure. Security measure was usually performed in forensic hospitals in Italy. Uh, very old. Even They started even before the law that established the, the civil mental hospitals, So because it was related to uh, what was going on in the prisons, etc. So I think this very bad institution where uh, remains of the reform, after 20 years of the closure of the old, old mental hospitals in Italy, also the forensic were still there, six forensic hospitals. So there was a final effort to close them and to establish small uh, regional units, or no more than 20 beds, managed with the so-called peripheral control by the police, but inside they must be like therapeutic communities. They must provide the best quality of rehabilitative care, particularly for people submitted to that. And this was a great advancement in our country, even if this is, for me, it's not the definite solution. It's a transition from the old system probably to another one. But in this case, these this places can suffer from the same contradiction, which is providing care and custody again. But the custody is not provided by mental health professionals, but, but by the police from the outside. So in a way, these are safe places where something can happen. And the person under the permission of a judge can also start to work, uh, start to go out, start to follow other programs in the community, start to be re-engaged in a sense of social social reintegration and social inclusion. I think this was very important. Of course, it's connected to what is happening into the jails, because I think it's also important to provide a good level of mental health care when you are restricted in a jail. You are considered to be 
even partially responsible of your acts, and so you have a normal trial and you are in a jail. This is the Italian rules. It's divided and split in, into pathways. But in any case, mental health services must be there and provide what is called the continuity of care. I stop here a little bit, so, because I think the experience in the UK is also very, very significant because it enlightens uh, a lot of contradictions and some solutions. This has been one of the most disturbing trends, certainly during my career as a psychiatrist in this country, the increasing trend towards what is called forensic or secure mental health care in this uh, country. There is an exponential increase in the amount of resources that are being spent on what is called forensic mental health care in the UK. If you look across Europe, all the studies, most recent studies show that there is something like 15 to 17 fold variation, 15 to 20 fold variation across European countries in what is called forensic mental health expenditure. These are very similar countries in many ways, but why this huge disparity? And why this increasing trend towards spending more and more money, locking people up for longer and longer periods of time in what are called secure hospitals? They're not really hospitals. They are like quasi-prisons where mental health care is undertaken. I would also argue, and I'm in a minority among psychiatrists who will argue this, it is very difficult to convince myself that there is a, a set of principles or theory or practice that can be easily identified as forensic mental health care as if it's a specialty. What happens to these facilities is no different from what's happening in prisons or in other psychiatric hospitals. There isn't anything that is special that is being done in these places. People with severe mental illness get treatment. People with who demonstrate dangerous behavior are confined within that. But the burgeoning of this discipline called forensic psychiatry is sucking up so much of the resources within mental health. And the outcomes of these institutions are very poor. It's not as if they turn people around much more quickly or people recover early or they stop engaging in antisocial activities when they leave these institutions, any more so than in any other mental health setting. And the instruments that are sometimes used in terms of evaluation of people coming into forensic mental health facilities, such as very detailed and complex risk assessments, all the research shows that the predictive validity is very poor, that they do not have a great degree of success in distinguishing between people who are likely to engage in further criminal activities compared to people who won't. So... There is a big question mark that I will raise, both theoretically as well as in terms of practical terms, about the usefulness of the notion of long-term detention of people in what are called secure facilities. Yeah, I think it's also important to learn from the UK because you try to find a solution to the same issue that we faced in Italy, that was the existence of these terrible hard institutions called forensic high secure hospitals, so-called, if I remember. And then you developed the medium secure and then low secure. But this became a sort of process of metastatization, metastasis, like cancer. So not resolving the problem, but creating more and more institutions which didn't change the paradigm. So the person there, in a way, is treated in a different 
different way looking at, particularly based on his uh, levels of risk. That is another important point because people with mental health problems are not dangerous themselves. So they don't were born dangerous. They become entrapped in some behavior because of life circumstances because sometimes their their personality problems or because of social determinants etc and one of the most important issue is the way they were treated by the services so many people in Italy were staying in these forensic hospitals per 20 30 years because they were abandoned not just by the families but by the services the services were thinking this was the best place where they can stay they don't disturb anyone they stay there they don't have any chance to get back a life that was worth living. So I think this was one of the key issues. Uh, dangerousness is not an attribution of the person. It's something that comes out from the interaction between the person and the system and the way that we treat and we look at this person. Let's use that word abandonment to bridge to the next topic. And I'm sorry we have to touch upon these so quickly, but there's so much to discuss here. We have, in a sense, abandoned a whole generation of people to the streets and to the jails in the United States as well. We have somehow suggested that their lives are not potentially fruitful, that <laughs> that it's their, their lives are not worth investing in. It's tragic on so many levels. And I was struck at the last conference about the emphasis that you placed on human rights. You know, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And it struck me, and I, I was in conversation with my colleagues who went to the conference, we don't talk a lot about human rights in the United States. We talk about constitutional rights or we talk about civil rights. But human rights has a, a different frame. And, and I, I'm aware that the United States has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So I'm curious as to whether one of the maybe the secret sauce to start to rethink about how we reimagine mental health services in America is to inject some conversation about human rights. So Talk to us a little bit about this because it clearly is super important in Italy. And, and Sashi, I know you've got strong feelings about this topic. Well, I think this is something that is coming to the consciousness of uh, humanity. Like we can say recently because, of course, there was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948 by the United Nations is, is a very important step. Then most recently, uh, people with disabilities started particular physical disabilities Disabilities, but also mental disabilities, psychosocial so-called disabilities, started to advocate the full rights. And so there was this important declaration just in 2006, which was issued by United Nations after a series of meetings and discussion, a lot of struggle around that, particularly pushed by people with disabilities to the United Nations. So there was this great recognition, the declaration that extended the so-called human rights rights. That means the basic rights that every one of us must have recognized and fulfilled. So the problem is not just the recognition of the inner dignity of the person and the power of this person on his or her own life, which is another important point. So having the power to fulfill your aspirations in your life. And so this was a great recognition that 
even people with more severe disabilities can have the same human rights as everyone. And so not submitted to what is called discrimination, that means being treated differently by the others because of a disability, and in our case, because of a mental illness, uh, mental disorder. You can find a lot of examples of how this can happen, from uh, having uh, the right to have a house, from being treated differently in the justice system, from having access to work and other things. So human rights are covering the whole range from the basic freedom of the person to the, the right to live independently and participate to the society, so have a vote, participate in the political and social activities, then having the right to be to receive rehabilitation. This is another article because you have a disability, the right to have a work, etc. So uh, all these are the components of a, a full achievement of human rights. I have to say, in our tradition, <laughs> in the Italian movement, we, we never talk this way because the starting point was that the person in the asylum, they were completely denied to be persons. So they were objects of the institutions, particularly at that time, they lose all their rights, including the rights to vote, the rights to have a driver license, for instance, or to manage their money, submitted to uh, many forms of tutelage control on their life. So we started to say that the issue was equality, having the same rights of the other, so becoming again and citizens of a society. So the concept of citizenship was very strong in our point of view. That means you have civil rights, uh, but also you must have social rights, particularly in a welfare state where you know the, the society must ensure that you have a response to your basic needs and fulfill the life in the way you, you want. So I think we started to re-elaborate more recently this basic issue because Human rights are, in a way, wider. It's a wider definition because this covers, for instance, the problem with receiving inhumane treatments, receiving uh, suffering from torture or different forms of uh, mistreatment. So, uh, and this is very significant in mental health because human rights violations are particularly performed, done on the bodies of people with uh, suffering from mental health issues. So you have to recognize this basic dignity of this person as a whole person with this body, which is not just a citizen. So it's not just, a, a, I mean, let's say an administrative definition. It's a person in his own body. This, this material aspect is very important. So you have to be fulfilled in all these rights. So I think it's a key to understanding that this is a full person in front of you, even if this person is suffering from mental health problems. And so you have to start to recognize that. And it's very interesting that when you recognize human rights, really recognize the person as a whole, you have a convergence of the two very important words, person-centered and human rights-based services. So you have these two things together. That means, you know, uh, helping the person to have a different experience in mental health. I love that. Of course, well, there are also critical points. For instance, the person, I don't want to be too emphatic, but because I think it's sometimes people say, okay, this is the convention for people with disabilities, but we in mental health are not disabled. We are like you. We are, you know, basically human beings. So we don't want to be treated as disabled because, you know, I'm a guy, 20 years old, I have the whole life in front of me. I just suffer from a 
a serious episode of psychosis maybe, but I don't want to be seen as a disabled person. So there are also tensions between that, also tensions between the concept of social inclusion and social integration or reintegration. So you can be reintegrated as a different person with disabilities or you must be included socially fully as one of us. So there are also tensions in this in this point. Exactly. Sashi, you want to add any perspective to that? I think um, Roberto summarized um, certainly my thoughts on this very also very clearly. Um, it, uh, it's um, I just want to go back to one of the things that he said: the the approximation or the the interconnection between person-centered approach and rights-centered approach. That's that's critical. Because this is a very fine balance to, to maintain and very fine line to tread because historically, psychiatrists and medical disciplines have tended to focus on ensuring person-centered care, quite quite rightly, what the person needs and the person requires, etc. But certainly within mental health, that person-centered approach sometimes tended to compromise people's fundamental rights because of the, the tendency to be taking charge of the person's needs and trying to address that in a more proactive way. So the rights had become eroded without us realizing that. So the current emphasis on ensuring the rights of people at the same time as preserving person-centered approach is absolutely critical in developing mental health services, in ensuring the right kind of care. And it has made a huge impact. There is no doubt about it. By reliance on having to comply with human rights uh, legislation in this country, it has had a profound impact in terms of how services are organized and how services are delivered. And there are some fundamental articles of the Human Rights Act which we will have to demonstrate that we comply with. And I also believe that in developing mental health care, it will have to be informed by the rights of the citizens, the human rights. And that has a key component in terms of developing, imagining mental health services rather than purely determined by the needs of individuals with mental health problems. I will include some links in the episode notes about this topic and to the World Health Organization Quality Rights Initiative, etc. Because in the new year, I want to explore this topic in greater depth. But now, as we move into this final segment, there's one thing we haven't talked about in our last two interviews, and that's the elephant under the rug, the pandemic. We're at the end of a very difficult year. We probably have a very, very difficult month ahead of us in the United States as we look at a, what I'm calling a dark December with hope on the horizon. But the two of you and a few other authors wrote a very prophetic article in April, I think it was published in April, May, um, called Mental Health in the Time of Coronavirus. You know, that was eight months ago, and it was already looking ahead to what we're seeing. And, you, you know, you, you talked about the opportunity to look at what the impacts are going to be on quarantine, people experiencing already social isolation before this even happened, higher levels of anxiety, boredom, depression. But you also said in that article that perhaps the most insidious impacts of this will not be apparent until later. So eight months later, have your views changed? If you were to update that article, is there anything you'd want to add? And I'll include that article in the episode notes as well. Well, Sash, you want to start? <laughs> 
I, I started with a point when I started to have a, a discussion with Sashi and some other friends and colleagues in order to write that article. The point was that uh, we were taught in uh, a community mental health, social psychiatry, if you can say, and we are uh, uh, accustomed to look at what is happening in the social field as a very important component of care, as a very important factor influencing mental health issues, ill mental health, and also mental health per se. I think in this condition with COVID, we are all, all citizens are experiencing a disconnection from the others in some ways, sometimes physically, sometimes also emotionally. Sometimes families are disrupted. Uh, I have problems with my sons and them because they are, don't live in the same city and also one of them in, in, in not in the same country. So it's everything is becoming so complicated and also, I mean, emotionally and uh, in a subjective way of appreciating what is happening, we can say we are feeling alone and uh, we are suffering from uh, a pandemic of loneliness. So the services working in mental health are suffering from this disconnection. They cannot use the social uh, links, the social connections to ameliorate the quality of life of people with mental health problems, to improve the quality of care and to involve such important ingredients in the care process and in the projects for life uh, of people with mental health problems. So we need to have services which are, again, more active in this area to amend this suffering therapeutic relationships compromised by the physical presence, which is not so easily to have. So we are doing everything by digital connections, online, etc., etc., distant and remote connections. So we need the physical presence to be there, as I said before, and this is uh, something that has been completely denied. And the places like services, like residential facilities, like hospitals are becoming the sources of contagion, the sources of infection. This is another great contradiction. So you don't go to people's homes. You don't provide the usual or even more intense support in the living environments. And you expect people also in a decreased numbers because they should be very, very much in need to come to services. And so you open to a wider contagion when you have this so-called ambulatorial approach, you know, outpatient kind of. So everything is becoming very strange. So this is one of the things I was thinking. And of course, the great suffering of people which are the most vulnerable for many points of view. And I think that we discussed a lot with Sashi, particularly about the point of those who are in the streets, those who are, have less uh, guaranteed social conditions, etc., and how must be important the concept of integrated support and care to people which are having very, very difficult times in their lives. Yeah, Sashi perspectives eight months after writing this article. It just so happened yesterday I was speaking to a colleague who works um, in a community, um, assertive community treatment team. Um, or people with long-term severe mental health problems. And I was asking him that it must be very difficult in these current circumstances with all the um, restrictions to be doing your work, going and seeing people at home. And uh, he told me this. He said that he went to see someone yesterday and he was trying to, to say something about the nature of the conditions under which we are getting used to living. He said that this man... He inquired about how are you managing with all these restrictions? 
not being able to see anybody. And he turned around and said, welcome to my world. This is how I've been living for the last 20 years. <laughs> I have very few friends. I don't go out. I don't see anybody. And he said, it struck him that, well, that is true. We are now waking up to this, the consequences of a life like that. And the virus will go away, it will pass. But the conditions under which this particular man lives unlikely to change. That's a great tragedy, that we will all become aware of the uh, critical toxic effects of social isolation and loneliness. But there is a large number of people with severe mental health difficulties whose life is dominated by those concerns. And I wish, as a result of COVID, um, mental health services will change somehow. But I doubt it very much. We will come out at the other end doing exactly the same things we were doing before coronavirus. I wanted to end this on, on a note of hope because because <laughs> it's the last interview of this season. And we didn't have time today to talk about your global action plan, which I know you're putting together a coalition of organizations and activists uh, to, to work on a 10-year plan to address improvements in our approach toward mental health systems and services and thinking and practice between now and 2030. So let me just close with this final question for the two of you. A year from now, I mean, maybe we'll be able to see each other, but a year from now in December 2021, what gives you hope of, about either movements that you see globally in your country, uh, people's eyes being open to some of these issues, a positive momentum? What gives you hope? And a year from now, what do you think might be changing? Well, it's difficult to say, but we, we must have hope first. <laughs> and I think it's important to have a, a prospect and a perspective transforming the kind of life we are having in this moment. But I agree completely with Sashi. We are facing the same problems, probably more uh, underlined by the pandemic. But mental health uh, institutions are sometimes very much damaging people's health, mental health, uh, even if they think they are treating uh, in a positive way. Uh, and so, and these are things that are, have been you know, uh, uh, enormously uh, emphasized by by the COVID-19. So I think we just learned and relearned what we knew. And my hope is that uh, as any crisis, there are some opportunities to make it a fundamental change. So this is the, you know, the, the spirit of the uh, action plan that has been launched. And I think it's becoming uh, an international and global uh, 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 call for everybody to, to contribute in local situation, because you see, it's very difficult to to promote uh, you know to make grandiose charter declaration etc etc then people have to face the day-to-day -day problems and they are suffering in the daily life so i think it's very important to start from the recognition of big issues and then coming to the little things of everyone is facing in their lives and try to have a local perspective while we are thinking globally it's uh, someone invented the term syndemic not pandemic because because it's taking a lot of issues all together 
uh, healthcare issues, mental health issues, social conditions, uh, economic factors, everything is suffering from a syndemic. And I think we must find integrated responses. This is my hope to have started to think in this very specialized and you know narrow-minded way and having a wider view and looking uh, at the person as persons, as people, uh, as human beings in, in, a, in a, the widest way that is possible. Sashi, you, you get the last word, hope. Well, I would say it's absolutely important to have optimism of the spirit. I never personally, um, in spite of all kinds of knockbacks, you know, it's something that one has to hold on to. One, it's very important and never lose hope. Never lose that sense of optimism. That's uh, absolutely critical in this business, especially when things are appear to be always going against what you want to see happen. You asked about how do we engage with that in practical terms, and I agree with Roberto. Global plans are desirable. Local action is essential. Wherever you are, it doesn't matter where you are, you can. There is a potential, there is the opportunity to engage in local action, local changes in relation to mental health care. And here in this country, what's happened as a result of the pandemic is a positive thing to come out of that there is an increased sense of community cohesion in many parts of this country. People coming together in very difficult circumstances to help each other out and to actually engage with others when they know that they are not doing as well as you thought they were doing. And that sense of that kernel of community spirit, you know, that spirit that has been reignited in the context of pandemic is something absolutely precious. And another thing that has happened, certainly very relevant to the area of work that I'm involved in, um, is the Black Lives Matter movement, which has really brought together a sense of purpose, pride, and engagement in our local black communities who have suffered the most in relation to mental health injustices in this country. And those two things have allowed us to engage in more meaningful action in trying to challenge some of the worst aspects of mental health care in our local areas. We need social action, yes. not just clinical care. That's the final. <laughs> Well, and I would put Heart Forward LA in the category of local action. And with your impressive uh, group of coalition members for the Global Action Plan, if you will take Heart Forward LA as a signer, we're in. We're all in. Uh, I want to thank you both for just your generous time, uh, these two interviews. I know it is going to be inspiring and informative. Uh, There's so much curiosity about your system, Roberto and Trieste. It is a North Star you know, we're never going to get anywhere close to it, but it's a North Star because it shows what is possible, how we can do better, and we can't lose sight of that. And Sashi, you are such a wealth of information about just the system also, and, and also just your 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 attempts to try to emulate some of this in, in the UK. Um, so we learn from both of you. I hope maybe we'll be able to do this again in the new year. Uh, we'll, we'll tackle some other subjects. And I wish you all a, a safe December as, as we you. head into holidays. And we have better things to look forward to in 2021. Thank you. Many kisses. Many kisses. Thank you. Ciao. Roberto speaks about the pandemic of loneliness that exists as we weather this grip that the coronavirus has on the world. 
He also mentions the notion of a syndemic, that what we are experiencing is something perhaps greater than a health pandemic, but involves the synergies of trends that result from health disparities caused by poverty or stress or economic and racial disadvantages that work together in such a way as to exacerbate the impact of an epidemic. It's a sobering thought, and I cannot not mention that on this day, as I sign off on this 10th and final episode of the first season of Heart Forward Conversations from the Heart, that the virus is surging throughout most of the country. Here we are in mid-December 2020, and for the second week in a row, more COVID-19 deaths have been reported in the U.S. than at any time during this pandemic. We are hovering at 300,000 human lives lost in this country. And the situation here in L.A. County has also become quite grim. The public health department reported just today that two people are dying every hour in this county, and our hospital system is struggling to keep up. Officials suggest that darker days lie ahead. I just share this to put a pin in this moment. We don't give up hope. There are heroes out there risking their lives to save people. A vaccine arrived this week and a second one was approved by the FDA today. So we press on. Thank you for supporting this podcast this season. We are going to take a little break over the holiday and regroup to bring a season two in the new year. I look forward to hearing from you about ideas for topics and interviews. I appreciate your subscriptions. I will include a web link to the fundraising portal on the Heart Forward website where you can make a donation of any amount to support this podcast. Thank you to Peer Mental Health. I could not have produced this first season without you. And thank you most especially to Paul Robinson, who has been tethered to me for the last 11 weeks as we have worked together, virtually that is, to get these interviews edited and uploaded so you can enjoy. Stay safe and see you in 2021.